Welcome to the Dirt to Dollars podcast. Hosted by Central Kentucky Extension Agents, Whitney Carmen, Daniel Carpenter, and Matt Adams. Where we talk everything from the dirt on your land to the dollars in your hand. Welcome back to another edition of Dirt to Dollars. It is gonna be may it's may uh the ain't week. gonna be it already is it's gonna be last week <laughs> it is actually today is the fourth of may so may the fourth be with you May the fourth tomorrow's cinco de mayo it is it is and you know so, the day after that's may 6th and the day after <laughs> that's may 7th <laughs> yeah 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 all right how you guys doing good good yeah. how about you i'm all right did y'all win a bunch of money on the derby over the weekend I didn't even watch the Derby, no. unfortunately. <laughs> I didn't either. I watched, I watched it. it. I watched it later that night. Yeah. I was too busy getting it was, sunburned. It actually looked like it was a really good race. Like one of the most neck and neck. Like nobody was just r- running away with it. Like it has been in the last was, few years. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it was a good race. And I think there's a pretty good story behind Medina Spirit winning that race, which if anybody knows, you don't bet against a Bob Baffert horse. But this guy seemed to be a long shot. That was an underdog. Neat. I always yeah. like an underdog. Y'all like underdogs? I do. I like the underdogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I usually pull for the underdog. I had no idea Medina Spirit was an underdog before going into this. But mm-hmm. I'm one of those that I don't really pay attention to it till after the fact. Then, like, I started seeing stuff and started reading on her on or on him on yeah cold right yeah yeah yeah. that shows how much i know about horse racing yeah (laughs) uh but yeah i started reading more on him like sunday saturday night after the the race was over and kind of a cool story what are those like purchase for a thousand dollars or something now i'd say there's a lot of money in training but yeah. yeah so what i was reading basically said that it the breeder that bred medina spirit keeps like three to four mares like it didn't it was just an individual bred Mm -hmm. that horse uh she had some circumstances family or financial or something circumstances came up and had to go down to one horse Mm -hmm. and basically gave this mare and colt away and the farm that she gave ended up giving them away to put this ended up putting the colt in a sale i don't remember what it is i can't keep all those straight and uh he was like in the back pen like Mm -hmm. the uh the ones that nobody wants and the minimum bid at that sale is a thousand dollars and that's what the guy bought him bought him for Mm. got him a deal yeah now look at him (laughs) some more of what i was reading so apparently i didn't know this but in horse training thoroughbred training so, like, Bob Baffert doesn't start out with that horse. Like, mm-hmm. it goes through, like, three different steps before it, sure. gets, before it makes the cut and gets to Bob Baffert working with him. So, uh, the guy that was below Baffert, like, really struggled on whether he was even going to take the horse to Baffert or not mm. and ended up taking him and then saw an interview over the weekend with Baffert that said it was it was really close that he almost didn't even running. Mm-hmm. It almost didn't even run him in the derby. Ended up mm-hmm. having a horse or two get hurt mm-hmm. was the whole reason that he that he got ran. And uh, then I think he was quoted right before the derby as saying he didn't really even think he had a chance of winning. He thought he might place. Didn't mm-hmm. think he had a chance of winning. So. Man, it's interesting. Just not much. Just no. shows, shows you don't give up, kids. 
Yeah, don't give up, kids. And, you know, I, th- I think the Derby is an interesting facet for Kentucky. And it's really, I mean, if you think about it, horse racing is still number one in, in agriculture in Kentucky. So it is worth talking about. Or, well, not It's not number one anymore. But it, well, it's not. Chickens. Chickens, Chickens are. Chickens but are it's number still one. up there. Yeah. yeah. But it is still a very yeah it's something we're known popular. for you know you're yeah. on the list you know that that list is going to have what what on it what's that kentucky list does it have bourbon horse racing and basketball uh-huh. i mean is that yeah and then fried basketballs chicken. basketballs slowly sliding down fried it chicken is. might might take the place of it we're not gonna talk about but that you know right what now. those three things then that would mean that those three things kentucky is known for is all related to agriculture it That's sure right. is that is it is Another little fun fact, I think the jockey that was on Medina Spirit that won the Derby also won the Oaks. He did. The last game. And he had a good he had a good week. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty sure that's the first that's the first jockey he's to a, have ever done that. He's a good jockey. I mean, if I were if I were betting and if I were paying attention to it, I I probably would have bet on him. What about the what were some of the horses' names that were pretty interesting? I saw is it soup and sandwich? Yeah. Yeah. And like, that one came I, in like way back. It was like 64 lengths back. It was like he was but he started out up there towards the towards the front though. Started out good, but I guess that's why you need to eat a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> if he was named steak, he probably would have came in first. Something. But you eat a soup like and sandwich. I started so I start sat down and somebody had shared a shared the race on facebook is how i saw it to watch it and i started watching it and i was like is this like a parody thing or something because some of the names they were throwing mm-hmm. out steak and potato with. should have been a, a name and that would have been yeah. funny to see how steak and potato fared up against soup and sandwich yes it would have been <laughs> daniel if we ever own a racehorse we'll name it steak, steak and, and potatoes okay i liked hidden stash because hidden stash was a uh, trained by a woman so that was kind of, if I were betting, I would bet on that too. I don't know. Glad that I was just glad to see people back in the stands and it kind of looked like a normal derby. Yep. Kind of gave you a little sense of things were headed back into normal, normalcy. So Daniel, you talked about, uh, had he had a hamburger instead of a soup and sandwich, he might've done a little better. Uh, I think there was a little bit of beef news this week. Uh, some recipe companies and stuff maybe pulling beef out of their yeah they got beef the they got they beef got beef with beef. beef what's the deal I think it's a it was a widely known recipe site and they decided that none of the recipe or they're, they're going to pull uh, beef off of all the recipes and I think was it just was it just beef or was it all meat I think it was just beef why y'all picking on beef I don't get it. Well, However, I've never gotten any recipes from that site, but I haven't uh, either. <laughs> I think maybe they're just trying to cater to their audience. Yes. Did you say you went in and took a look at the comments on yeah, some of the recipes? You know, ever since they've done that, I think every recipe they've posted, somebody made the comment on there. Oh, it'd be a lot better with some beef in it. <laughs> <laughs> Take that. And I well, think they're and, right. <laughs> gotcha. And you know what? Let, speaking of beef, it's beef month. And so what a what a month to try to take take that off the the menu and take those out oh you don't think that was planned oh yeah you know (laughs) marketing man marketing yeah and i've also seen in the news this week uh this is kind of interesting some of the higher end restaurants i think in new york uh new york and chicago and some of the bigger cities uh that have been closed or closed to you know limited traffic or whatever during uh covid as they're coming back, they're announcing that they're going to come back completely meatless or vegan or whatever. And that's kind of a, kind of seems like a bold move, Cotton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, they're entitled to do whatever they want to for their customers. And I think 
the customers will eventually decide what the market's going to be. They may end up putting beef back on their their menus, but and I, bet, I bet it doesn't make headline news when they do it. That's yeah. right. They're not going to get the publicity out of that. And in and, the grand scheme of things, you know, what those few restaurants do that make the news doesn't really have an impact on the cattle markets um, or anything like that. It's, it's really a drop in the bucket when it comes to that. It's just, it just makes the news and it makes free advertisement for those companies. It really does. And it kind of makes free advertisement for beef if you really want to think about it. And honestly, yes, it if that's the case, more, more beef for us, more beef for me. I'm okay with it. Well, and so what I what I was seeing is there were actually some food critics and stuff that were commenting on this about, you know, is that really a good move? These are restaurants that you go and spend three to five hundred dollars a plate to get a meal at, and uh, do you really want to? Are customers going to want to go there and spend that for a plate full of veggies, especially when it's a place that uh, they got got famous and got their customer base based on some of their meat dishes yeah i want a plate full of veggies i'll go to my garden yeah that's right that's right so that's kind of like uh if you if you cook it they will come if you cook what the customer wants they'll come so uh time will tell kind of kind of reminds me of a movie if you build it they will come oh y'all know what i'm talking about yeah build of dreams yeah so that, that movie was in the news a little bit here this last week mm-hmm well, for, for what reasons? Because it's been in the news for a couple of different reasons, but yours is probably a little more interesting than, than mine. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, kind of neat. The uh, 1977 John Deere 6420 tractor that's used in the in the movie, I think the one that he's mowing down the cornfield mm-hmm. with, with the daughter riding on the fender. Yeah. Uh, it sold this week, or actually Wednesday, April 28th, so last week at the Julian's auctions of Beverly Hills, California, Hollywood legends auction. I bet they don't sell a whole lot of tractors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the only tractor that's ever been sold there. But it, they did pretty good with it. Maybe, maybe some farmers need to take note if they've got some equipment liquidations to happen here because it brought $64,000. I will say, I thought it would bring more than that. Why, you know what that tractor Just because of the movie, just her? because of the things that people pay for movies right. that mean a lot to them. Mm-hmm. I think if it was in a more rural setting and like there was more farmers aware of that, I bet yeah. it would have brought more than that. But mm. that is about. 10 times what that tractor would have brought for I tell you, here in I Kentucky mean, if it you think of some iconic things I mean that's something that I remember from that movie is him going across the field in that tractor I, yeah uh, you know I, I, I'd say it was probably about right but still I, I wouldn't have been surprised I guess I should say if it was more than that have any of you all ever been there no it is, but like, it's still they're gonna there. do it this year I think I think they're actually gonna play a game there yeah. are they not yeah major they're league game into- Mm-hmm. They were going to last year, I believe, yeah. and it got canceled because of COVID. But I was able to go uh, several years ago when we were in that part of the world. It's it's kind of neat. It looks just like it still did in the movie. I mean, the house is mm-hmm. still there, and, and that's actually somebody's farm and house. I mean, it all mm-hmm. it's cool. all there. I've always heard that it's really neat. I've been close to it, but I've never been there, actually. And so when we went, there were probably 25 or 30 people there, and they were all out on the field. It seems like there's always people out on the field playing baseball. So. And they plant. I guess that's been, when was that movie? 1980. Uh, I got it right here. 1989. And it's supposedly had a corn crop planted around the ball field every year since. So there's a really good continuous corn study right there. <laughs> if, if Iowa State Extension wants to get involved, but because they always plant, I think it may just be eight or 12 rows, but they always plant corn around the edge of the field. So it looks like, always looks like it does in the movie. 
talking about farm movies. Can any of you all think of a good farm movie? It's like movies like with farms in it or that talks about, you know, set on the farm. Well, I think there's one that stands above all. Okay. And and that's son-in-law with Polly Shore. (laughs) Does that's just a that's I think it won an Oscar. It's a that's a good film. Did it really? No. Maybe in Daniel's eyes, it won an Oscar. Uh, probably, you know, Polly Shore, I guess that was probably in the 90s. I'm sure it was in the yeah. 90s. That was, he, he, he was big then. And was it Encino Man that he was in? I always thought that uh-huh. movie was funny. Yeah. But uh, there's got to be more. Uh, babe. Babe. Charlotte's Web. Yeah. Animal yeah. Farm. Yeah. Of course, I guess that's a book. We think of the book more than the. Mm-hmm. Movie. A lot of people talk about Animal Farm here lately anymore. A lot of a lot of animated movies. Several Barnyard. Who can forget Barnyard? Yeah, Milo and Otis is set on the farm. Yeah, that's an old old movie. I was googling through that while ago, and I was like, man, I hadn't heard from that or heard about that movie in a long time. Twister, Twister. That's a. I didn't think about Twister. See, that's I, a lot of farms I, and Twister. Cow. I thought about Twister, but I thought, well, that's more of a weather movie. That's probably pretty pertinent. It is this week with all the bad weather we're having. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. I got two more. I got two more for For richer or poor. poor, That was a good one. That one's good. I remember that one. Tim the Toolman. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And the horror classic that if you have sheep, you need to watch this. Black sheep. Yes. Have you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm, I do. That is that will creep you out, and you will not want to go in the field at night with sheep. Uh. -uh. It's spooky. It's one of them B movies, and I'm not. I'm not telling you to go watch it, but if you have sheep, just if it's on like Netflix or something, just watch five or ten minutes of it because it's dumb. We can't. But it's watch, really spooky. We can't watch scary movies at our house because I have two chickens that live in my house, and they. Well, don't. I'm a chicken, and I did. I watched. I think I watched the yeah. whole movie, but it yeah. is just. It was so dumb. I would not recommend watching the whole thing, but it is kind of mm-hmm. spooky to watch. It's just a really crappy B movie. But anyway, all right. So we talking about crops and baseball fields and we probably need to talk about uh, another type of crop. And it's a, something that we don't typically consider a crop and that's our pasture fields. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to, uh, Whitney, do you want to introduce our guest for today where we can talk about this topic? Sure. Joining us today, we have Dr. Ray Smith with us again. He is the forage specialist at the University of Kentucky based out of Lexington. And uh, Dr. Smith, we're glad you could join us again today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be here with you guys. Yeah. I was not here the last time and they will never let me live it down. I was on the beach. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I could finally actually get to talk to you uh, again. So we're, we're glad you're with us. So I think Dr. Smith has a a very interesting topic today uh, talking about treating pastures as a, as a crop. So uh, I know all through my extension career, it seems like it's been a fight and Whitney and Daniel, you all mm-hmm. may, uh, may have experienced the same thing, but it, it always seems like the, the row crop guys, we try and talk them out of spending money because they, they want to almost put too much management into the crop sometimes and, and spend too much on, but the hay and pasture guys, uh, it's like, it's a fight to get them to spend money and to manage mm-hmm. these crop or these pastures more like a crop. So, uh, I guess, what are some things, Dr. Smith, uh, do you feel that pasture should be treated as a crop? Uh, what are uh, some things that I guess gets taken for granted compared to some of our grain crops and other crops that we have? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I really do feel like they should be treated as a crop. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a forage specialist. It, it really <laughs> struck home when I was in New Zealand a few years ago and I was touring around and I was looking at 
um, very efficient operations with how they handled their dairy cattle and, and beef animals and their sheep. And, and I, I was asking the, the guy touring me around a lot of questions and he just kind of looked at me like, well, kind of like I'm kind of like I'm dumb. Um, and he said, well, you know, in New Zealand, we treat our pastures as a crop, kind of like, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I kind of went, uh, and it, and it, and it really got me thinking and it got me thinking about crop producers, as you talk about, Matt, in, in the U.S. and Kentucky. And they're just really diligent about having goals of what yield they're going to have. I'm making sure that they're fertilizing to those goals, um, making sure that they're managing the crop with the, with the weed control, et cetera. And, and so the, the livestock producers in New Zealand, they're doing the same thing, but they've got pastures to work with. Um, and so it, 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 it struck me, you know, what can we learn from crop producers that, that all of us work with both crop and livestock producers um, to treat our pasture more as a crop? Um, and, and, and as I thought about it, some, I, you know, I thought about like your question, why don't we do that? And I mean, part of it is our pasture is going to, our, our perennial pastures that most of us deal with are going to be there. They're going to be there next year, whether we fertilize them or not. They're still going to be there. Uh, maybe with some extra weeds, even if we don't use a herbicide. Um, but if we start treating them as a crop, then they're going to be more efficient. They're going to be on um, better quality. Um, adding the fertilizer according to recommendations are going to be higher yielding, um, not overgrazing. Um, you're going to have more to work with. You're going to have more production in the summer if you have it overgrazed in the spring. Um, so we can have a, a lot more more production from our pastures, more quality production, um, better gain, better health in our livestock if we treat pastures as a crop. Well, and Dr. Smith, what is, according to your optimistic yield, or what would you expect uh, that to be? So are we talking grazing height? Um, are we talking hay, you know, tons of hay? Where, what would you consider um, your economic yield to be there? So the really most important thing, I mean, we all want maximum yield. Um, we look at kind of averages across Kentucky. They come in pasture yields of two, two and a half tons, hay yield average, maybe three tons, sometimes not even that much. We know that they can be higher um, mm -hmm. with, with good fertility programs and good grazing management. But my, my main point is knowing, having a good idea of what your yields actually are and then mm -hmm. using those yields, using that kind of estimation of what your yields are um, to then manage your, your grazing program. You know, if you have no idea of what your pasture is going to produce, um, then you're going to have a hard time deciding how many animals it's going to carry. Um, so there's a bunch of ways that you can determine yield. I mean, you can do it just by long-term experience. Um, you can do it by, you know, a little more detailed ways like taking a grid. I'm, I know you all can't see this, but I'm holding up a one foot square grid, taking a pair of scissors and um, clipping the forge within that grid, um, drying it and weighing it. Um, if you've got one square foot of forage, then you multiply it times the square foot feet in an acre, uh, 43,560. You would take more than just one square foot. You'd, you'd clip several and, and, and get an average. Um, there's, there's some good publications on our forage website. You know, just um, Google KY forages, go to the grazing section, 
we've got several other techniques to measure yield. So what, however you do it, um, determine your yield and then determine your stocking rate based on that. And, and we can talk further if, if you all want to about some of the ways that you can calculate um, that kind of stocking rate based on yield. So it's a lot like taking your corn or soybeans and measuring out a piece of ground and putting it in a grain cart and seeing what our yield is. Mm-hmm. Not, not much different than what we do with, with forage. A little easier, probably. A little easier. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't take right. as much time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just takes some time. Um, and for all you, everyone out there listening, um, you've got great county agents that are on the podcast. And if, if you're listening and not in one of these counties, um, your county agent can help you, you know, give you some ideas, maybe even um, loan you some of the kind of equipment that you need to, to do this with. And, you know, we talk about um, taking quality samples from hay, you know, when we have mm-hmm. special coring machines to take a quality sample. Uh, but in your pasture, it's good to kind of have an idea of quality as it goes through the season. You can do the same thing with a pasture. You know, you just take that sample, you can actually go into the pasture and just take grabs of the sample and clip them off, send those directly to the lab. Um, you know, you might want to go ahead and dry them down so they're a little bit easier to ship and send it to the to the Kentucky Department of Agriculture lab or, or to Dairy One or Waters or whatever lab you choose and get an idea of what the quality is on your pasture. And in most cases, in fact, in almost all cases, the quality of the pasture is higher than any hay that you're producing. Um, quality of a grass clover pasture is, is better than some of the best um, alfalfa production. Um, and so kind of taking that into mind too, we often just don't think about it. We just think about, oh, that's pasture. Uh, but we can get tremendous gains by relying on that pasture, providing enough quantity out there so it's not overgrazed um, and relying on that quality to get good gain. This makes me think about a producer that you and I are very familiar with in my county that used to say he raised stalkers for a living, but he was a grass farmer. That's what yes. he, you know, yes. and we took a lot of what he learned and he took that to heart and he actually treated grass like a crop and he was very successful at it. Exactly. Whitney. Exactly. Yeah. So we talked a lot about yield and quality. Uh, I think one of the things that hangs producers up uh, on managing their pastures and treating things like a crop is there's another component in there as far as grazing efficiency and being able to uh, harvest is just a whole different ball game than it is with like corn or soybeans. Uh, and it's something that happens multiple times through the year. Uh, what are some ideas you have as far as laying out paddocks uh, and working with your stocking rate and being able to harvest those forages efficiently uh, once you get them get them growing? So people often ask me, you know, I've, I've heard about rotational grazing. I'm, I'm thinking about trying it, but it just seems like a whole lot of trouble or maybe it's some land I'm renting and, you know, I, I don't really want to put a lot of expense into a water system and a fencing system. And I'll say that, you know, you can start rotational grazing by putting one fence through a pasture. And so then you, rather than one big pasture, you've got two paddocks. Um, and so then you have your cattle and, and you graze them for two or three weeks on one side, on one paddock, um, and then two or three weeks on the other side. Um, now, that that's not the, it'd be better to have more paddocks, but even just those two give you some rest period. They give you some options. They give you the ability to do some things. Um, then when you, so so just start very simple. You know, start with a, 
a simple system of, of one or two fences, and maybe you still just have one watering point. And if that's working for you, then move into three paddocks or four paddocks or, or, or five or six increases your efficiency because then rather than two to three weeks um, on each side, you know, you move up to four or five or six paddocks, then you can graze for four or five days on one paddock, uh, move it to the next paddock, move it around. So you can get up to where you have a, a three or four week rest period. And, and then your grazing period is, is, is just a week or less. And so when you start to do that, you start to be able to graze at the right height. We like to talk about um, starting grazing at about um, 10 inches tall. Um, you, you've got very high quality growth. And, and then when you, after you start grazing that 10 inches, graze it down to three or four. Um, it's gonna grow back quickly if you don't graze it down into the ground or if you don't graze it too close. Um, so um, having those multiple paddocks that allow you to give a rest period and then give a grazing period. In fact, probably the very most important thing with managing a pasture productively is giving a rest period. I'm giving that in the spring, it might just be two weeks when things are growing fast. As you move into the early summer, it may be three or four weeks. As you move later in the summer when it's drier, it may, may be a little bit longer than that. But giving that rest period um, allows the forage to grow back, um, allows you to have um, better control over, over weeds, um, can even allow you to take one or two paddocks if you've got several subdivisions um, and take a hay cutting off one of those. Um, and then determining stocking rate, you know, it can get, can get a bit complicated. Um, some of you may have heard of grazing sticks that we give out at some of our grazing schools, and they've got formulas about um, taking your estimated yield and your number of animals, et cetera. But, you know, um, you, you can do that, and I encourage you to think about that. But if you've got an estimate of your yield, if, 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 you, if you determine um, an average 10 inches of height um, would be about 2,000 pounds of forage with our typical fescue, bluegrass, clover pastures. And you want to leave a few inches, so you want to leave about 1,000. So in essence, you've got 1,000 pounds per acre on that typical pasture that's 8 or 10 inches tall. And you just think to yourself, well, I've got cattle that are going to be needing about 3% of their body weight, maybe 30 pounds a day. Um, how long is that 1,000 pounds going to last me? Um, I know they're going to trample a little bit, so maybe I want to figure they they need I need to allow them 40 pounds a day, or even 50 pounds a day. So, pretty quickly, just really simple math. If you've got a thousand pounds out there, you want to allow the, uh, 50 pounds a day for what they consume and what they trample. Um, you're, you're talking 20 animals on that one acre for that one day. Are you say, well, I've um, I've just got 10 app. 10 animals in this group. So then that's two days. So, you know, just really simple math in thinking about what's the production, how long um, can I leave the animals out there? Well, and I think too, if you can talk just a little bit about knowing what's in your pasture as far as the grasses. And I think that plays a lot of, uh, into a lot of how long we can rotate in their growing system throughout the year. Yeah, very good point. So, I mean, we all think about weeds and we don't want weeds. So mm -hmm. my first thing I would tell someone is to look at your pasture, um, you know, look at what weeds might be there. 
but determine if if you mm-hmm. if you see weeds and it's something like a, a dandelion, it's very nutritious. You don't want your pasture covered mm-hmm. because they, they they don't yield as much as the grasses. Um, if the weeds that are there are horse nettle or tall ironweed, uh, then they're not going to do anything for you, and the animals are going to avoid areas. But again, just a few of those problem weeds, you really want to kind of ignore them. Uh, because they're not really changing mm-hmm. the grazing pattern that much. Or, or you can get you some sheep. <laughs> They'll eat them. That's right. That's <laughs> goats. Um, but, you know, yeah. don't think about, oh, the neighbors drive by and they see the weeds and they're going to talk about me at the coffee shop. I think about, uh, do I have enough weeds that the animals are actually avoiding large areas? Um, because you go and you start doing a lot mm-hmm. of spraying, uh, which you need to do to control those really tough weeds. Then you kill your clover. Um, and then you maybe kill some mm-hmm. of the things we call weeds that are actually nutritious. So, so if you, if you, if you don't have that pretty high percentage of problem weeds that greater than 15 or 20%, then you just don't even worry about those. Uh, then you look at what are the grasses mm-hmm. that are there. Uh, fescue is one of our best grasses, both the fact that it survives a long time. It provides well, it, it, it grows well in the spring, pretty well in the summer, grows great in the fall, can be used for stockpiling. So that's a good forage. Um, we don't really want the whole pasture covered in our, our regular Kentucky 31 tall fescue because of the toxins. So when we're looking at that pasture, mm-hmm. um, we'd like to see some Kentucky bluegrass out there too, um, some orchard grass growing out there. Um, we, we'd like to see them in the summertime. It's fine to see some crabgrass growing out there. That's a very nutritious crop. You don't want a whole pasture mm-hmm. of crabgrass yes. because you don't have the spring and fall production. Um, you look and see, do I have clover? Do I have some red and white clover? Um, that's going to provide better quality. That's going to provide um, some dilution and some beneficial effects um, to, to the Kentucky 31 tall fescue. So a good range of grasses, of perennial grasses, um, having some red and white clover make a huge difference. And then if you don't have very much clover, it's easy to add that. I mean, the spring of the, or the, the late winter, um, say February, early March through frost seeding. So it's easy to add clover back in. So a good diverse mixture is really the goal of our of our perennial pasture. Okay, so one of the uh, I know one of the big hangups on really managing intensely managing these pastures is just strictly the financial aspect of it. Uh, on most livestock operations, you know, the livestock struggle to show the same profitability that a lot of other pro- other enterprises do. Uh, what's your opinion on budgeting for these forage systems and uh, how can that be a tool that may affect your grazing system? A yeah, really good question, Matt. And so, you know, my first comment is there's a lot you can do with not spending and not spend very much money. So, for example, um, to get a soil test is only going to cost you a few dollars or maybe free in some of your counties. Um, getting a soil test doesn't mean that you're going to um, put all the fertilizer down that's called for. You know, we encourage that and recommend that, but you may decide that a year like right now with high fertilizer prices, that you're going to look at, maybe you've taken a soil test on five pastures and a couple of hay fields. And so you've got all that information. And then you say to yourself, well, I can't quite afford that fertilizer bill, but I know that I want good production of these two hay fields. So I'm going to make sure I follow the recommendations. And then I've got this one pasture that's always quite productive. I want to make sure that it's meeting its potential. Um, and then those other pastures, you know, I'm going to probably, I'm going to wait to next year. But if you don't have a soil test, 
um, you haven't spent those few dollars for a soul test, you can't make an educated decision. Um, and then like we talk about, I mentioned before with weed control, you know, you can say to yourself, well, you know, I can't afford to do any weed control this year. I don't, I don't have the funds for that. But if you just simply walk through your pastures and do a bit of monitoring, uh, you know, call your county agent if you need some help identifying the weeds, whether they're real problems or, or, or not. And then you can make a decision. Um, maybe the weeds really aren't that bad. I just thought they were bad for when I drove on the road. Um, or maybe there's one or two pastures that they could use some, some help, could use some herbicide. Um, so just do those. Don't think about doing your whole farm. And the herbicides you use, you know, there's some that are promoted widely from the companies because they make a little bit more um, profit margin from them. But it may be that 2,4-D is going to do fine for the weeds that you have. So using the herbicide that fits. Um, and, you know, we talk a, a lot of people ask me about, well, I need to do some overseeding. My pastures are kind of thin. You know, what do you recommend? I want to make sure that I buy the very best variety. I mean, we <laughs> talk about buying the best variety. Um, but it could be that, that your pastures are a bit thin, but the best thing is just adding some clover. Um, and when we talk about putting in red clover and white clover, we're talking about, you know, pounds per acre. We're talking about six or eight pounds of red clover, one to two pounds of white clover. We're not talking about very much money and they can be added by frost seeding, which is again, just broadcast on top of the ground there in the late winter. Um, you know, maybe you're gonna add some other grasses in, um, it, as well um, in the fall of the year. You know, that's gonna cost a bit more money. Um, but again, if you're overseeding, you don't need to go with the full seeding rates. Mm -hmm. When the real costs get into pasture is when you talk about doing a, a complete reestablishment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there's definitely time for that. But, but to me, that's definitely not the first thing you think about. The first thing you think about is how can I better take care of what I've already got? Mm -hmm. um, that's where doing a few subdivisions of fence with not much out of pocket for some electric fence system. You know, that's where judicious use of fertilizer. Um, that's where that frosting and clover come in. Um, so in a lot of ways, you can make huge improvements with very low cost. We've seen someone going from a system where they graze continuously to having maybe a, a four or five paddock rotational grazing system, um, increasing their, their effective production by 50%. Now, I don't mean necessarily that they grow 50% more forage, but they're utilizing a lot better what they have. Mm -hmm. And so that they're able to have more cattle they're able to have higher quality. They're able to have more pasture in the summer months. They're able to have more pasture in the late fall um, by moving to that system. So long answer to your question, um, but judicious use of funds and using some knowledge that you might learn at a grazing school or just learn through some of the publications of the website can make a huge difference. You said something there that it kind of hit with me. So when we're treating pastures as a crop, What's one of the one things that our crop producer, or typically, you know, our grain crop producers think about? They think about what seeds and what varieties they've got, and they look a lot at the research and which ones do the best, and they don't mind to spend a little more for the really good ones, but I think that's something that we struggle with, and I've done this myself. When I go and I look at the research and I look at those high-producing varieties, and then I end up going with just whatever the local provider has in stock or whatever's the cheapest, um, I'm guilty of that myself, but I, if we really want to treat pastures as a crop, I mean, we need to take those seriously and use those because they, they do show that they return over time and research shows it. We just have to get past that 
sticker shock sometimes and, and, and go with what research shows us. Very much. And, and University of Kentucky has one of the most extensive forage variety testing programs in the country, not just mm-hmm. in the southeast. And so take a look at that. And often the best varieties, I mean, they usually they do cost a little bit more than just the, the, the common seed or maybe the with fescue, the Kentucky 31. But often the price differential right. is not that much. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're many times talking about maybe 50 cents, maybe a dollar more uh, a pound. Well, so you're, and you're, when, you're re- deciding, when you're deciding what clover to frost seed, I'm using the best varieties and we're talking mm-hmm. fairly low seeding rates. Um, if you're talking about, um, you're going to the point that you've got a pasture that has a lot of problems with fescue toxicosis or a lot of weeds and you decide to start over. The novel and the fight tall fescues that have um, good survival, good production, don't cause any issues with cattle. Um, those typically are about a dollar a pound more than Kentucky 31. Um, so a tremendous difference in what's going to happen with the animals with those improved varieties. Yeah, I was going to say you have to look at it. And I try to tell my producers, you know, look at the return on investment. You know, if you're spending that extra money, but you're also getting a lot more gain, it kind of evens out at, at some point. And, you know, think to yourself, um, I've had people say, well, every fall I'll do some overseeding. I don't know if it makes much difference or not, but I'm, I'm doing it. Um, and, I'm, and I've even had people tell me, well, I'll buy the best variety. But if, if you're doing something that does not make a difference, really think to yourself. Because if you're overseeding and you're not taking the cattle off the pasture, then they don't have those new seed don't have a chance to recover. Right. Um, or if your bigger issue is fertility or weed issues, it's not helping just to put more seed in the ground. So really look at what are your greatest limitations and your probably your first thing is not to put more seed in the ground. Your first thing is to think about, you know, am I, um, have I made some subdivisions so the pastures can rest? Rest is usually the thing that makes the greatest difference. Um, think about, am I, am I doing liming and fertilizing to soil test recommendations? Um, you know, am, if I've got a lot of weeds, am I controlling weeds? Once you've got those things, once you've got that rest, once you've got the fertility, then you say, well, I want to make sure I've got the best varieties out here. Uh, but, but don't go and put a bunch of seed out there into ground that, that's low pH and low fertility um, mm-hmm. or is covered up with weeds. Sometimes people think, well, I get the no-till drill and I run through there, I'm going to make a difference. That might not be the, what you need. I want to go back and uh, touch on fertility just a little bit uh you said something that kind of stuck out and reminded me of of something uh when you were talking about managing fertility in pastures something that producers a lot of times seem to forget is in a pure pasture situation i think is it about 60 percent of the nutrients that'll be recycled uh by that grazing animal back through the manure as it's distributed back out uh and then something we've kind of started paying attention to on our farm and trying to, uh, to plan out, you know, we have our paddock subdivided and that also gives different places to feed a little more concentrated in the winter. Uh, if you can do some things like trying to unroll hay, uh, strategically place your feeding areas. We've built some feeding pads in the last few years, trying to put those in the center of the paddock. Uh, some things like that to get some manure distribution in the winter. Uh, I know when we pull soil tests on our farm anymore, it's mostly just to monitor pH uh, because our, our P and K will, will stay pretty high up and very seldom do we ever have to put any 
commercial fertilizer on just through some management practices and recycling some of that back through the cow. Yeah, great point because, I mean, we'll often even say that you'll get 80% of the nutrients that the animal's consuming recycled back onto the pasture. And we often think about that from, oh, well, yeah, sure, the manure, I know that's good, good fertilizer, but, but in the urine, there's pretty high concentrations of nitrogen. And, and most of the potassium that the animals are consuming are coming out in the urine, going right back on the field. When we're talking about, in a, in a, when you're cutting hay, then you're taking off a lot of nutrients, particularly a lot of potassium. If it's a pure grass stand, a, a lot of nitrogen you've got to put back on. But in a pasture, you're putting that back, back there. Now, the problem is if you got a big pasture and you've got a, a pond in the one corner and some shade trees in the other, then a lot of those nutrients are going to end up in that pond or around the pond or in the shade trees because yep. the animals are spending time in both of those places and not out there grazing. Uh, but if you've made some subdivisions uh, and you've got some temporary waterers that they're not going to be standing in because they're just enough for them to drink out of, then they're going to be distributing those nutrients um, back around the whole pasture, um, both in that manure and both in that urine. Um, and so you're, you're right. Once you get the fertility um, at kind of the recommended levels, um, then very little leaves the farm in the animals that you sell. Um, most of it's going back there. And so you, you have a tremendous savings with your um, fertilizer bill. Um, and, you know, the other choice is you may say, well, fertilizer is high right now, but I'm still able to to buy some um, rolls of hay from a neighbor for a pretty good price, you've got a lot of nutrients in that hay you're buying. Mm -hmm. And so then strategically feeding onto the pastures that need the nutrients. Um, with fertilizer prices right now, you may can buy hay for the value of the fertilizer in that hay. Mm -hmm. And you still got hay that has the quality <laughs> and nutrients to feed the animal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so think about how you use hay to beef up your pastures. One last uh, question, I guess, before we have to get off here, but what is, you know, in, in looking at all of this and uh, the overarching um, idea behind this, when would be a good time? When's the best time that you would say for a producer to evaluate their pasture? I know we talk about all of this in what to look for, but when do you think is the best time to, to look at this? I've, I've thought about that some and um, in the spring of the year, uh, like right now, mm -hmm. um, usually our pastures are looking pretty good. They've come through the winter. Uh, they've got good grain grass growth. We, we typically have good moisture. Um, the nutrients that are in the soil, um, a lot of those have kind of broken down and been more available over winter. So spring is usually not the best time to make long-term assessments because it, things look pretty good. But as you move into the summer, and particularly in the fall, you know, you get into September and you're looking at your pastures and ones that have been overgrazed, you can see that they're not in very good shape. Uh, ones that the fertility is on the low side, they haven't grown as well through the, through the summer months. Um, a lot of the weed issues, particularly the problem weeds um, that, that we can get in the summer, um, you're seeing those. So, so I really believe that late summer, early fall, is, a, is if you're only going to pick one time to really take a look and make a strategic assessment, that's going to tell you kind of the accumulation of problems that you've had. The adv other advantage of looking at late summer is if you find that you've got a lot of, of a bare area, a lot of thin spots, 
then you could do some overseeding with grasses. Uh, or you could decide, well, I need to add some clover. You now, fall may not be the best time to add clover. Um, I want to add it frost seeding. Uh, but I've also got a whole bunch of weeds. So what do I do? I don't want to kill the clover. Um, late fall is a great time to kill a lot of the weeds that we have. Um, a lot of the, particularly the winter annual, the thistle and buttercup and things that they germinate in the late fall. And so you could do a herbicide application in late October, and you can still go back with your, with your clover um, in February, um, as long as you make sure you're choosing herbicides that don't have a long residual. So answered to that Whitney would be that kind of late summer fall tells you the best um, best way to look at what the problems are. You've also got timing to make some solutions um, to those problems. Well, I think that's about all the time that we have for today. We appreciate you joining us and we look forward to seeing you soon. Glad to and hope to see you all at upcoming events um, that as we get back to normal. Right. Yeah. See you, Dr. Sounds Smith. great. Some good conversation there with Dr. Smith. Uh, one thing that sticks out in my mind, you know, we're guilty in extension a lot of times at throwing a lot at people at one time. And so I just want to say, don't, don't let this overwhelm you. If you haven't maybe been managing your pastures the best that, Hey, I've got to do all that all at once. It's baby steps. Start mm-hmm. with one thing, uh, go into it. And then if you can come up with a system, uh, no, that's what we've done on our farm is tried to come up with a system where you renovate one field a year or even just soil test one field every two or three years just to check where you're at. You know, once you kind of get into a cycle, then you can uh, you can. It, it's a little easier. There's a whole hey. lot to be said for just having a plan and having right. it in writing that's right. and just yes. doing those and things and getting started. That's a big step. And something that we don't even think about. A lot of these things we probably do, but you know, if you can put those in writing and it kind of helps you to stick with it and and to see where you're what you're doing, where you started and where you're at now, it's very helpful. Well, and I'll say that too. It, it could be as simple as shutting a gate in some instances. You know, I mm-hmm. tell people because people come to me and they go, I don't even know where to start. Well, and it's like he said, and I'll reiterate it, you know, you want more than two paddocks if you can make it. But I mean, it could be just as simple as shutting that gate off and and making two and starting somewhere, making your plan and going for it. But sometimes you got that whole situation with water. Um, You know, where's the water at where, you know, there's some restrictions there and that's, that's why it's good to just make a plan. And maybe Mm -hmm. one of those investments is you need to put a waterer in, in this backfield. Mm -hmm. And, And then you could split your pasture up in four or five different ways. Uh, just all things to keep in mind uh, as you're, as you're developing your pasture system. And I'll say too, I know one of the best things that I went to as a, as an agent and as a producer is going to some of their, their grazing schools, because they do teach you some of those low cost, innovative ways to do the waters, do the fencing and, and, and do it so that you're not overwhelmed and they do help you create that plan. So I'm going to, I'm going to plug that a little bit when they continue to do those. It's a good opportunity to, to sit in one of those classes. All right. So did you all, did you all get the notification? I think last week or something we got coming up. Yeah. I, I noticed somebody's name on there that maybe a certain podcast and radio show in central Kentucky. Yeah. Something with wheat. might be involved with mm-hmm. wheat, 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 <laughs> wheat. Yes. There's going to be, the wheat field day is going to be virtual, but we get to moderate it. I'm kind of excited about it. Ooh. It'll be a fun time. Never been labeled a moderate. 
I think somebody uh, might have been a little might have been a little <laughs> misled on oh. the, our level of fame. Or yeah. I'm not real sure why they wanted us. But yeah, but that wheat field day is it's, yeah, it's gonna be Tuesday, uh, May 11th, and so it will be virtual. Yep, 10 to 11:30 Eastern time. Mm-hmm. Eastern time, and if you're interested, holler. 10:30 Central time. Yeah. No, I ain't worried about Central time. God's time. We better be worried about Central Time. Yeah, that we'll day, be late. That's when we have to be there. <laughs> Actually, we'd be early. Yeah, so that's why I'm not you worried are. about it. We'll be early. You are a mess. Yep, it'll be on Zoom like a lot mm-hmm. of other stuff has been the last 12 months. So I know there's a lot of people, a lot of wheat producers gearing up, start spraying fungicide probably next week on the wheat mm-hmm. crop. Uh, so you may be sitting in the sprayer cab and couldn't have made it to the field day anyway. So just pull it up on your phone, stick your earbuds in or whatever, and listen and watch when you can. We'll try and ask the questions for you. I think there's going to be some live interaction. If you mm-hmm. if you have questions, be ready to ask them. And So we made it through the show, and we have no song. We need to think of a song that ties into the show today. Do y'all have any suggestions? Because we got to wrap this up. We're, we're go- we've gone long today. Oh. I got several songs about horses. We did talk about horses today. So you've got whiskey for my men, beer for my yeah. horses. Beer for my horses. Yeah, I like that that's, one. Mm-hmm. But then there's another one that that's kind of horses. The Rolling Stones. And it's all right. Well, the race is on, and here comes Friday. Oh, Sawyer Brown. Well, I, like I think one. it's I think it's Sawyer Brown, but it's actually uh oh, the possum, George Jones. Yep. Didn't he sing that one shows. first? Mm-hmm. All right, let's go with that one. <laughs> I guess that does it for this week, and we'll see y'all next week, hopefully from yep. the Wheatfield Day. Yeah, we'll see you All then. right, y'all have a good week. <laughs>